0: It is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Welcome back for session 34 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. For today's episode, I wanted to take a deeper dive into something we touched on in session 17, all about eating disorders. This week, we'll be talking about emotional eating. Today, I am joined by Lisa Savage. Lisa is a licensed clinical social worker and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Her focus of study was on health and mental health. Most of her career has been focused on the provision of quality health care to underserved and impoverished communities. Ms. Savage is a strong proponent of taking services to people in their communities. To that end, she began working in schools and other community settings. In the past several years, she has expanded her services to schools and opened the Center for the Child Development, which focuses solely on the provision of mental health services to children and families in the school setting. Additionally, Ms. Savage owns and manages the Delaware Center for Counseling and Wellness, where the focus is on helping adults in areas such as anger control, stress management, emotional eating, and marriage counseling. Lisa and I chatted all about why Black women often engage in emotional eating, how it's connected to trauma, and some strategies you can use if emotional eating is something you struggle with. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. You're welcome, it's my pleasure. So I'm excited to have you here. Um, earlier in the season, we had a psychologist on to talk about um, eating disorders in general, but I did want to get more specifically into the concept of emotional eating. And I know that is one of your specialties. Um, so I'm glad you're able to join us for this conversation today. So can you talk with us more about what is considered emotional eating?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and this is a topic that I'm very passionate about because I feel like it impacts um, women in the Black and Hispanic community a lot more than what we realize. So emotional eating is the consumption of food that is in response to an emotional state versus a physical state. So some physical signs of hunger um, that cause us to want to eat are, um, you know, slight lightheadedness, our or s- tummy is growling, or we haven't eaten in a f- few hours. People who are emotional eaters tend to eat in the absence of those um, physical symptoms of hunger. Emotional eating is, again, the response to eating. And, and what I find is it's subconscious or unconscious eating so for example a person who sits down and consumes a bag of um, M&Ms an entire huge bag of M&Ms and then a few minutes later goes wow how where did that food go how did I eat it Um, to me that's a classic indication of a person who is um, an emotional eater because there's very little Um, thought about the amount of consumption or even the fact that the person is eating in a way that um, is is a huge amount of food. Um, So that's kind of an overview of what emotional eating is. I mean, physical hunger is one thing and we typically need to nourish ourselves every few hours, but people who are emotional eaters will eat throughout the day with very little mindfulness about what they're consuming, and how much.
0: So Lisa, you mentioned in the beginning that you feel like this really impacts black and brown women um, in a higher level than we may realize. Can you talk about why you think that might be?
1: Yeah, Um, there's a couple of reasons. So um, as I'm going about my business, and I live, I live in Baltimore, I live in the city, and you'll hear people, People talk a lot about how obesity is a problem in um, Black and Hispanic communities. And and, and in some ways, that is very true. I think where we fall short is that there is a little bit of, and not enough research, I think, on why there is this um, um, issue of obesity in our kids and in our our adults in our communities. Um, So I I feel like, People in our communities, particularly women, feel ashamed, feel embarrassed, feel shamed by having weight problems, and they and they blame themselves. the The reason I think that obesity and eating problems in our community are huge because there is a tremendous amount of chronic stress and um, chronic exposure to trauma that goes untreated or people perceive that some of the experiences that they go through are normal and so they don't stop to think about the impact of some of the experiences that they have so for example i work with i work with kids so i have a practice at that where we work with kids it's our specialty and um chronic stress in children literally changes the architecture of their brains. There are some studies that have shown that in children who are exposed to chronic stress, and I'm gonna talk about a little bit what that looks like in a minute, but those children who have been exposed to chronic stress in childhood, um, even early childhood, as early as infancy, it changes the brain that then puts them at risk for obesity. Okay, so that's one part, and that's the structure of the brain. Um, and so, if you can think about these kids, and they're exposed to stress, and some stressors that we identify in working with kids are violence, poverty, um, food insecurity, and um, let's see, abuse of any type, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, bullying. These conditions are ongoing in a child's life. So any one of these issues um, wouldn't is, is a big deal. But often what we're seeing is children and then adults have been to, exposed to multiple um, issues of trauma and chronic stress that then go on to impact them um, physiologically, physically, and often lead to to adult physical problems, including obesity. And so when I started um, looking further in into this, it really helped me to transform how I look at obesity in the black and, and Hispanic communities. Um, and again, I feel like in our society, we shame people who are overweight without really taking a look at the causes uh, of why people overweight. Um, so when I'm driving through a black community where I live and I see children who are overweight, one of my concerns is not so much about the impact. I mean, obviously the impact is on these kids physically, but also I think about the untreated trauma and chronic stress.
0: Yeah, Lisa. And I think you bring up an interesting point around um being exposed to it so much that you don't know that it's like not normal mm-hmm. and so then if you don't know that it's not something everybody is experiencing then you might not get help for it which then results in you becoming an adult still dealing with this untreated trauma
1: yeah i mean absolutely it's amazing what people experience that they consider to be normal and and what happens is because people don't have oftentimes people don't have in childhood someone to say that's not normal that should not have happened to you and let's talk about it and so people kind of go on with their lives um still carrying the baggage of uh things that happened to them in childhood and then what we see is as adults depression anxiety um um, and, and emotional eating poor self esteem. And then when you, when you add all those together, because those are typical issues that people who have obesity struggle with, um, you have a really unhappy and unhealthy person on every level. And so a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is to address Um, these issues in children. And I I work a lot with adult women who have emotional eating, but I feel like if we could address these, the chronic stress, the trauma, um, and and support kids and teach kids how to cope with things in their lives, that we can then avoid um, physical problems. We could also avoid um, emotional eating and and therefore obesity. I, I read a study recently that said 31% of all adults who are overweight um, have endure trauma. I mean, that's that's huge to me. That's huge. Um, So I I think doctors, medical doctors, um, miss the boat when they don't refer a person who has um, a problem with weight to a therapist first. I feel like oftentimes doctors will shame the person blame the person and the last thing that they do with a person who's sitting in their office who may have a bmi that's high is they will say you need to lose weight everybody who's overweight knows they need to lose weight (laughs) so for a doctor to say you need to lose weight kind of misses the point um so one thing that i'm doing too is really trying to educate doctors that if you see children and adults in your practice who have um, problems with weight, refer them to a therapist first and have that person assessed.
0: That sounds like a really good suggestion, Lisa. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you have some ideas about what might make someone kind of use emotional eating. I mean, it basically is like a coping mechanism, right? Like something that you're doing to kind of deal with stress. What might make a person choose emotional eating versus something else um, to yeah. cope?
1: Yeah, that that's a great question question. Um, It's, I I think for some people in earlier childhood, they identify food with feeling good, food with feeling better. Um, So I'll work with some people who will crave um, sweet, sweet things, sugary things. I think that, and when we go back and do history with that person, what I find is that when they were feeling badly or um, or even as a treat sometimes, parents will do this, they will, parents or or the child, will soothe themselves with food. And in most instances, food is available, not necessarily healthy food all the time, but, you know, a corner store, you can go and get a bag of potato chips, you can get a candy bar. Um, and so for some people, food becomes the object that doesn't reject them the object that causes them to feel um temporarily better um, the object that is available and they begin to associate that good feeling with eating um and, and a feeling of comfort with eating it's also a control issue too so if i'm if everything in my world is out of control um, you know, if my parents are fighting or there's domestic violence or I'm you know, being sheltered from residence to residence, the one thing that that child might have control over is the food and the amount of consumption that they have. And so it becomes habitual and it becomes um becomes a maladaptive way of coping very much like any other addictions. So some people will say, you know, I would never touch alcohol. I would never do drugs, but their, their, their addiction, their compulsion of choice is food. Um, it's a little bit more socially acceptable than, you know, getting drunk or getting high. And so people tend not to associate it with, um, Something negative, although we do know that the consequences of eating and overeating can be um, as deadly as um, other other addictions so um, i'll when i 'm working with with children um, it's it it's become becomes very apparent to me kids who are struggling with emotional eating because they 'll look to me to reward them with food um, or they 'll come to my uh, my office and they'll have tons of food with no awareness as to how much they're consuming and, um, and the fact that they're not hungry, but it's a way uh, that they learn to deal with the chaos that's um, occurring in their world.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine you you mentioned earlier um, something about like food insecurity. And so I can imagine, you know, for a child who grows up not kind of knowing where their next meal is going to come from, maybe for days, that could also be something that kind of turns into this emotional eating.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Um, we see some kids um, in our practice who I see a lot of kids actually who have experienced food insecurity. And so what that means is Um, Not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, not knowing if there is going to be another meal. Um, So these kids sometimes tend to hoard food, um, and it it puzzles their teachers because they will, um, quote unquote, steal from the cafeteria, which in my mind it's not stealing, um, it's a way of survival. And they'll hoard food in their lockers and their desk drawers. And teachers don't understand, like, why is this kid doing this? Um, they just had lunch. But a, a lot of it stems from food insecurity. And so if you don't know when your next meal is, is going to come, if there's going to be another meal, again, food bec- you become attached to food. Um, and it, it is an unhealthy um, connection, although we have to eat so it's not like we can say you can abstain from food because we have to eat. It's what keeps us alive. But when you develop an unhealthy attachment to it, either because of things that you're experiencing in your life, food insecurity, um, it can often lead to to bad habits and then a longer-term um, unhealthy attachment to, to food. Um, and so I I try to work with people around um Learning how to love themselves their bodies body acceptance um, Because one of the other things that I've seen and, and this to me is so fascinating joy is people who are overweight tend to not have a Good perception or accurate perception of their body. So here's an example um, You know I was working with someone who was really quite obese and um had very little um her her perception of herself was skewed based on how other people saw her so um she was puzzled why friends and family would say things like "You're, you're eating too much she because she had no true sense of her body Um, and so that's problematic too, because people learn at an early age because of experiences like trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, to separate themselves from their bodies. Um, and again, that's another symptom of emotional eating as well, because people who are not connected to their body in a sense of having a realistic perception of themselves, um, tend to then overindulge. So it's really sad when that happens, but I find that is is very accurate and true with a lot of people who struggle with emotional eating. Um, and so they don't look at themselves in the mirror. They um, might wear clothes that are a little bit, um, that don't fit, again, because their perception of their true weight or size is skewed. And they end up... Um, continuing to to engage in emotional eating uh, because it's a way of avoiding literally looking at themselves And and that's real sad when that happens
0: yeah and we talked um you know in the previous eating disorder episode we talked about you know how um because food is so big a part of culture typically in black and brown communities how sometimes this can be easily missed you know like you said we all have to eat and a part of like celebrations a part of mourning a part of everything really it feels like in black and brown culture really does involve food so do you feel like there are other cultural pieces that really kind of make this really important for us to talk more about in black and brown communities
1: oh absolutely (laughs) um in our communities um we tend to center things around eating so like you said you know if there's a funeral if there's a birthday we we center things around eating um if there's a baby that's born and that baby is not chubby <laughs> 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 um, you know, the grandmother of the family is going to say you got to put some weight on that baby you got to feed that baby when in fact the baby is healthy and, and being properly nourished so um the, you know the cultural things are if we if we're not eating if we are too thin in people's minds um, or other people's minds then that's a problem. Um, you know, a nurturance. Sometimes I see parents nurturing kids around food um, and. I see that in kids and I see like if they've done really well, they want Miss Lisa to feed them and I try to really avoid that because I don't want to associate eating necessarily with something positive. So I try to reward them in other ways. Um, And so it very much is part of our culture. It's sometimes the way that we show we love each other. You know, come to my house and I'm going to fix, you know, macaroni and I'm going to have greens and and chicken. Um, And it's our way of showing that we love people. And so the intent, of course, is not to is not to hurt one another um or to 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 make others feel badly, our intent in our culture is to make people feel loved and welcomed um, and that's fine, except when we um, fail to make the connection that uh, food can sometimes be a problem for for some people, much in the same way that that alcohol can be. And so, if we have a um, an alcoholic in our family, we're not going to say, "Come on in, have this drink." You know, it won't hurt you. You know, so just being mindful of. The messages that we send to children, to ourselves, to each other about eating and associating it all the time with something that's positive. Um, and again, we, we, we can't get away from eating because we have to we have to nurture ourselves. But we have to um, we have to do a shift in our thinking that um, food really is solely for nurturance. Um, it is not to make us feel good. Um, and, and unfortunately, in a lot of cultures, that's the association that is along with food is that it's, it's to make you feel good. It's to celebrate. Um, it's to mourn um, because it can become, for vulnerable people, not everyone, but for vulnerable people, it can become that... Um, they can form that unhealthy attachment to eating that helps them to avoid dealing with painful emotional states or baggage that they have not dealt with in childhood. Um, So for women who have been sexually abused, and we know um, from recent news events that lots and lots of women have been sexually abused, um, there's already a disconnect with your body because um, because of the abuse, and so oftentimes women who have been sex- sexually abused um, have have problems with eating as well. And so, if you, I think there's some studies that have drawn a correlation between sexual abuse and and people who are overweight. So we know that there are issues uh, um, that come out of past childhood traumas or adult traumas that will um, greatly contribute to people having an unhealthy attachment um, to eating. Um, It would be, you know, it's remiss of medical professionals to not get that. Um, So another anecdotal story is that a lot of, I know I've known several women and men who've gone through bariatric surgery, which for some people has become a lifesaver, and, and I'm really glad that, that it exists. However, the downside to that is most of the people that I know who have gone through bariatric surgery and lost tons and tons of weight because it is effective in that way, what do you think happens in less than a year, Joy?
0: <laughs> They've put the weight back on.
1: That's right they gain it back. And the reason they gain it back is because they didn't deal with the emotional. And so the way that the, the, the problem that caused them to um, have, to be overweight um, never never gets resolved. And so again, I'm not saying that people should not have bariatric surgery because I think it certainly is an option for people. But what I'm suggesting that is if you do that, Um, and you elect to to go through the surgery, that it is extremely important that you deal with um, trauma, uh, you know, stress, um, and any other unresolved issues that may have caused the problem in the first place. Because a doctor can um you know cut you and, and, and change your your um, digestive system, but that does not change the mental at all so it 's very frustrating for people who've gone through it to then turn back around and gain that weight back and it 's really, really sad when that happens because that 's not an easy surgery for people to endure um, you know so again I, I I lean back on the medical. Uh, field and our medical professionals and say um, in childhood, when you see a child who is struggling with obesity, the very first thing to do is to get that child connected to um, a mental health professional for at, at the minimal. Um, an assessment to see if there's any underlying issues that's causing that child to eat. And I can guarantee you that 50% of them have some emotional attachment to food or some unresolved issue that will only get worse as they get older. Um, So in my practice, um, we just integrated in the pediatrician's office, and I talked to the pediatrician about allowing us to... um, bring in our childhood obesity program. And she was all on board with that because she said that one out of every four of the kids that she sees is um has a high BMI and leading toward obesity. And so what we're gonna do in her practice is we'll have a therapist and we'll have a dietitian, because that's also part of the treatment. Um to work in the pediatrician's office. So the three of them will be working together to address um, that child's uh, weight problem and that of the family, because you can't treat the child um, in in the family where there is unhealthy eating and not treat the entire family.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. so you have already talked lisa um a little bit about you know working on some body acceptance kinds of things with your clients but i'm wondering if you can share with us any other like techniques or strategies that you might use with clients that would help them to like better manage emotional eating
1: yeah so i am what i do with with um, I'll take you from the beginning and um, through kind of the process that we go through. So when someone calls me and they want to um, get help for emotional eating, the first thing I do is a complete psychosocial history. So that means that I um, talk to that person about their childhood, about their current life, um, about any physical problems that they might have. Um, and if I see where there's some concern for either anxiety or depression then I will um, assess them for for those as well because often that is the case Um, after that then I I tell them the important three important things that they have to do if they're going to work with me they have to commit to journaling they have to commit to exercising and (laughs) most people look at me like I'm crazy Um, but I try to tell people that when I say exercising, I mean they just have to move their body. So if that means that beginning, um, in the beginning, all they can do is walk around the corner, I, I just want them to commit to that. Because in order to feel more connected with our bodies, we've got to engage with our bodies. And the best way to engage with our bodies is well one of the best ways is to exercise and so and, and it's also of course good to help for, for our health as well so they have to journal they have to be willing to um exercise and they have to be willing to see our dietitian. then they have to be willing to change one thing um that they do that they know is unhealthy in terms of eating so if they are you know let's say they're addicted in quotes, to sugar. So they have to be willing to give up one thing that they know is unhealthy and and contributing to their problem. So, you know, let's say they they love to eat Snickers bars. So they have to be willing to give up Snickers bars. And I try to start very slowly with people because it is a process. And oftentimes when adults come to me, I mean, they've struggled with this. They've been through every diet um, and they know they, they know what they need to do. They need the support. So um, journaling, because that helps people to become more mindful of their emotional state. Um, a lot of times we're walking around and we're, we're living and acting unconsciously, um, meaning we're just not aware of why we're doing what we're doing, what we're thinking at any time, what we're feeling. And so journaling helps clients, people that I work with, to become more aware of their internal experiences. So, you know, um, you know, I'll use my stuff as an example. Today, um, this morning I got to the office at 6.30 a.m. and as soon as I walked into the office, I was I, like, I was hit with all this stuff. I had all these things that I needed to get done. And so I plopped down on my sofa at one point and I, I, I did like a five minute meditation because I could feel myself getting keyed up, and to the point where I wanted to scream. And so being unconscious about our emotional state can lead us to making um, some wrong decisions. So I could have you know, easily snapped at someone or made a mistake or missed something. So in order to be more conscious um, of myself, my thoughts, my feelings, my body, Sat down for five minutes, and I I did a mental assessment of my body. So where am I feeling the stress at? You know, my shoulders were tense. Um, I was breathing. You know, probably unconsciously rapidly. Slow down my breathing. Relax my muscles, and then come up with a strategy for how I'm going to get through the rest of the morning. Um, so being mindful, and, and a lot of people have heard of uh, mindfulness. It's an extremely important. Um, tool that I use in working with people who um, struggle with emotional eating because we a lot of people who have emotional eating move through the world, uh, through their day, without being aware of what's going on internally, okay? And so, those are the techniques that I use to help people to become more body aware and more um, conscious in every single thing that they do, but, but particularly the food that they put in their mouths so another thing that they do is they're journaling um, they have to journal every single morsel of food that they put in their mouths and um, I know that when I did this for the first time I was struck because if, if I if you had asked me before I started journaling my food intake I would say oh I don't I don't eat that much during the day no I you know I eat my breakfast and my my lunch and then I come home and have dinner when I started journaling what I realized, <laughs> which was um, a little bit overwhelming, was the amount of mindless eating that I used to engage in. So between clients running down to the break room and grabbing, you know, uh, crackers or candy or whatever, when you become aware of how much you consume that you're, you're, you're not aware of and, you're, and it, it's this just mindless eating it's a lot. And so typical people need to have between it depends on your body weight but between 1200 and 1600 calories women um a day. Well, when we start to write down what we're eating and we add up the calories, it's a huge amount of calories. Um and some of us can consume that a day's worth of calories in one meal. So um, when I'm coaching people I'm coaching them to cook a lot more at home because then they can control what goes into their food and they can make better and less emotional decisions about what they're eating because when we're eating out a lot of times um and I know this is true for me I'm looking on the menu and it all sounds so so good um, and then inevitably i'll make a choice that I end up regretting so if I'm cooking at home, then I can can be. I can plan. Can be mindful, um, and then I can um, make better choices about what it is that I'm going to eat because I'm slowing down to be aware of how hungry am I really. What are the physical signs of hunger? Um, sometimes I'll ask people to rate their hunger on a scale from zero to ten, um, and that helps people to become more aware of whether or not they're physically hungry versus emotionally hungry. So zero being um, not hungry at all and 10 being starving. And most of us never, ever, um, thank God, get to 10 because we're never truly starving. Um, I try to get people to change their language around eating. So um, again, rather than using the word I am starving, because again, most of us, don't ever starve so you might say i'm you know i'm hungry like i haven't eaten um, in about three or four hours my tummy is growling and i'm feeling a little bit of light lightheaded i'm i'm hungry um and if it's like between meals like say between lunch and dinner and a person is feeling hungry i'll get them to rate themselves on that scale zero to ten where is your hunger If it's below a five, do you really need to eat something right now? Um, And oftentimes the answer is no, I can wait until dinner time.
0: So I can imagine, um, you know, like we've talked about since food is so accessible, right? Like you can have a bag of M&M's in your purse and you can have like just snacks around you all the time. I think that's probably also a reason why we kind of just turn to food. So are there other, um, you know, like really accessible kinds of things that you teach people to use instead of like grabbing a bag of M&M's?
1: Yep. So for me personally, and what I what I did and what I I teach uh, my clients to do is to do meal prepping. Um, It's a lifesaver to do meal prepping because you can anticipate what your day is going to be like, and then you can plan your meals accordingly. So um, what we do here in my office now is rather than – and again, we work with a lot of kids and, and adults as well, but rather than keeping candy around, we'll keep fruit in, in the kitchen. And so if, you know, for, t- for example, I have a super busy day today, so I was able to go, I had a salad for lunch, I'm going to work until seven o'clock tonight. So I know between now and seven o'clock tonight, I'm going to be hungry. I'm got, My hunger is probably going to be at like like six or seven by the time I'm done. So if I've planned out how I'm going to manage that hunger, that makes it a lot easier for me to, to become um, agitated, frustrated, and, and feel the need to run down to the vending machine and grab something that's completely unhealthy. So I have fruit. I know that I can go to my kitchen and I can eat it you know, quickly between clients and then I can go to my next client and I'm satisfied i 'm not agitated because I, i've um, i 've eaten, and then I can wait until dinner and so simple meal prep, which means that for the week you plan out what every single meal is, including any snacks it 's also important to um, to be mindful of what your most vulnerable times are so Again, for me, I got here to work at 6.30 in the morning. I'm not leaving until 7. So I know that today's a vulnerable day for me. Um, I need to plan for that. So I consume lots of water because water is good for you. Um, and then I have my fruit down the hall. I know I can go make myself um, you know, a quick fruit salad that's already made, put it in a cup. takes me five minutes to eat it. I'm nourished. It's healthy. I can go on to see my next clients. So planning, planning, planning. Um, when we work with kids, we teach parents to plan for the kid because obviously the kid um, is is not necessarily in control of the food process. When we work with adults, the dietitian that we work with um, literally, <coughs> excuse me, walks. Um, each client through their own individualized food plan. So we have some people who are vegetarians and some people who who love meat. And so she's able to sit with that person and say, let's meal plan around your favorite foods. Um, and let's build in, um, you know, your snacks and, and base it on the kind of day that you're going to have. So, you know, if I'm working with a woman and she's a you know, busy professional woman and she's got children and she's got to take them to soccer tonight, I know that at the end of the day, when she's picking up her kids to go to the soccer field, she needs to make sure that she has a snack with her that she can enjoy while she's, um, while she's um, at soccer practice with her kids um, and the same thing for her children. So being slowing down and um, planning how you're going to, how you're going to eat and what you're going to eat through um, through the entire week. Now, obviously things happen and, and um, it can throw you off, but if you stick to your meal plan, 90, 90 to 95% of the time, you're doing great. Um, and, and it's, I think for a lot of the adult women that I work with as well, I feel like sometimes women, in particular, and and black and brown women, sometimes don't engage in self care in the way that we should. Um, we're busy. We're working. We're taking care of children. You know, we may have a partner that um, you know requires a lot of our time. Those of us who are self employed, um, there's a lot of pressure on us. So learning how to slow down and make um, healthy decisions for ourselves really is part of the process of recovering from um, things that happened in childhood because oftentimes people who have gone through um, difficult childhoods or experienced um, really difficult traumatic experiences don't learn how to take care of themselves because it was not modeled to them when they were growing up. And so they don't know how to do it So, live walking through life. They might look good on the outside, but on the inside they're a mess. And so I have to teach people this is what you need to do to take care of yourself. And now I need you to come up with a um with a self-care plan. What does that look like? Write it down for me and let's let's talk about if this makes
0: sense. Those sound like great suggestions, Lisa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have some favorite resources that you could suggest for people who may struggle with emotional eating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a couple of things that I would, um, there's an author, Janine Roth, who is, um, in my mind, she is the best resource on emotional eating. So anything by Janine Roth, there's a book called, It's Not What You're Eating, It's What's Eating You. And it's by Dr. Roth, R-O-T-H. And her first name is spelled G-E-N-E-E-N Roth. R-O-T-H, um, she has been around, I mean, I would go as far as to say she is probably one of the pioneers um, in my mind, as far as mental health professionals are concerned with dealing with emotional eating. So it's it's called, um, one of her, her famous books is called, It's Not What You're Eating, It's What's Eating You. I think that's kind of like the, um, the first go-to book that I would suggest for people who feel like... Um, emotional eating may be um, an issue for them I also feel like people who um, have gone through uh, childhood trauma or chronic stress I think um, a good suggestion is for them to do an ACE score and ACE stands for adverse childhood experiences and it gives you a number uh, based on you answering some questions about just how significant your childhood, uh, adverse childhood experiences um, were on you and continue to impact you. So it's ACE, ACE, and if you Google ACE, or maybe Google adverse childhood experience, you'll come, you can find um, the, an assessment that's online, that's free, and it's it's valid um, and, and reliable. And so I would strongly suggest anyone who feels like they're struggling with emotional eating, um, take a look at what their childhood experiences were and how they might still be impacting them. Another book that I loved that really helped to solidify in me um, the impact of childhood trauma and its effect on our body, kind of generally speaking, is called The Body Keeps Score. Awesome book. I I have it on um, um, audiobook that I listen to in my car. Um, And it just reinforces the work that I'm doing with women and children in terms of helping to address childhood issues so it's called the body keeps score and the author's name is escaping my mind (laughs) but if you google the body keeps score you'll find it um but it's it's an excellent book that helps um that will help um people to understand just um the physiological impact of trauma and stress and what that does to our bodies. And furthermore, how that impacts our physical and emotional health. I mean, it will help people to understand even more how um, how their emotional eating is derived nine times out of 10 derived in um, childhood issues, unresolved childhood issues.
0: So those are great resources, Lisa, and I definitely will include links to all of those in the show notes so people can find them easily.
1: Good. I'll find out the, uh, I'll remember the author's name. I'll send that to you. <laughs> um, she has an unusual last name and I can't remember it, but I, I have the book. So I'll give you the, the, her, um, the author's name.
0: Sounds good. Yeah. So can you tell us more about your practice? I mean, you've already kind of mentioned that you work a lot with both kids and adults, but I'd like to hear more about your practice and if there's anything exciting you want to share about what's going on.
1: Yeah, so um, I own actually two practices. One is called called the Center for Child Development, and um, that's, um, that's my largest practice. We focus, obviously, on children and children's issues um we we work um primarily in schools so it's school based um there's 28 therapists that work in my practice we are in delaware and we cover Oh my goodness, probably over a hundred schools and county at this point. So the need for mental health services for children is just increasing. And um, for any therapists out there that are listening um, and you have experience and skill working with children, I would strongly encourage you to think about developing a school-based mental health practice, it's rewarding, but you're also going to make a tremendous impact on children's lives by being accessible to them in their schools. And then the second practice that is hells we're all housed in the same um, office, is called Delaware Center for Counseling and Wellness. And that's where I work with adult women who have emotional eating problems. Um, So in that practice, it's mostly coaching. It's not so much therapy um, it is really coaching people toward better self-care being more mindful of their lives living more consciously in self-care and then we have the dietitian patty who um consults with um our our clients in that practice as well when i'm working with women with emotional health um, emotional eating i like to also collaborate with their medical doctors as well um and and try to help people to get healthy on on every domain so physically um emotionally spiritually because people who have gone through childhood traumas um tend to um have a lot of uh, issues on most domains of living so i feel like if we can kind of help them to pull those together and create um a holistic plan for helping them um then they stand a better A chance of success so all those clients come in they get an assessment for depression anxiety their aces score um, and then we individualize a plan with that person and we provide a lot of online coaching so that if a person is struggling over the weekend and you know they are they have a party that they're going to and they're really anxious about making a good decision they can connect with us online um, so we can coach them through um, and a lot of times people just need that emotional support. You can do this Here are some options that you have um, Now now go make a good decision for yourself. So really empowering people um, to make some changes in their lives and then um, the, the third thing that I'm doing and this is specifically with therapists who are starting a practice um, or want to grow their practice me and Kim Knight um, who's another therapist in New York are doing a training online called the university of private practice where we are coaching therapists to build their practice um so i'm going to work with people who want to build a school based mental health practice but also just a traditional um office practice as well so that's going to start on november the 15th i believe um and so if you don't catch it this time then we'll do it again in the spring um and dr joy will post information Um, on this broadcast about how people can
0: um, connect with us around that training. Yes, I've definitely heard some great things about the training. So I'd highly recommend anybody who is interested in opening a private practice to definitely get in touch with Lisa and Kim to join the University of Private Practice.
1: Thank you, Joy. appreciate that.
0: You're welcome. So where can we find out about all of this amazing stuff that you're doing? What are your websites and any social media handles you'd like to share?
1: So for uh, um, the children's practice, it's the center for and then for um, the adult practice, it's Delaware Center for Counseling and So it's the center for and then Delaware center for counseling and wellness.com. And so that's how I can be reached. And for the uh, emotional eating, I can work with anyone across the country because it is not therapy. It is coaching, but if you want therapy services, you have to live in Delaware because that's where my practice is. (laughs) Um, And the same thing for getting your child connected with services. We do, um, we do, I, I think, a really good job with children. And so if there's anybody out there in Delaware, even though we're really tiny, um, we, um, we are accessible and available to work with kids in person here in, in the state of Delaware.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Lisa. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lisa and encourage you to check out some of the resources she mentioned. You can find those in the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com backslash session 34. And if you're a therapist looking to start or grow your private practice, you're in for a real treat because Lisa's University of Private Practice is open for one more day. So you have until November 30th, 2017 to sign up for this incredible program. You can, of course, also find out the information about how to sign up for this in the show notes. I'd like to thank all of you that completed the survey mentioned in last week's episode. If you haven't completed it and would like to, you can find it at therapyforblackgirls.com backslash M-E-D-I-Q. If you're thinking that starting therapy is something you'd like to do as we approach 2018, please make sure to use the therapist directory to find a therapist in your area. You can find it at therapyforblackgirls.com backslash directory. And if you love the episodes of the podcast that you've heard so far, I want you to do two things. First, come on, hang out with us in the Facebook group. You can find that at therapyforblackgirls.com backslash tribe. And that's where we continue all of the conversations that we start here on the podcast. And the second thing I want you to do is text your friend, cousin, line sister, and any other special sister in your life and tell her to listen to the podcast as well. Let's keep the love going. Make sure that you're following us across all social media. You can find us on Twitter at Therapy4, the number 4, B-Girls. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Therapy for Black Girls. Please keep sharing your thoughts about the podcast by using the hashtag TBG in session. I love to see you mentioning the podcast in your Insta stories and on Twitter. So please keep doing that. Until next week. Make sure to take good care of yourself.